Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Sandy Green. Um, we will be reading from the book of Jonah, chapters 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. It's so good to be with you. Uh, today. It is, it's so good to be with the people of God. And we missed you last week. My wife and I were out um, and our family, we were out visiting some family out of state. And so it was odd not being with you on Sunday morning. I'm excited to be here today. Excited to open God's word with you and to finish um, what really is an amazing, amazing story that we're given in God's word today. So if you're not already there, turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. My name is Jonathan Mosier, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that. And it's my privilege to be able to read this word with you today. Well, the month of July uh, is a busy one in the Mosier household. Um, it's, it's one that for a whole lot of reasons is busy for us. This year we had some travel and things like that. But every year, the one consistent thing that we have is we celebrate two different birthdays in our home. So both of my boys uh, were born in the month of July. Leo turned seven this year, Harvey turned five. And so um, we get the excitement of being able to celebrate with them and be able to spend time with them and all of those sorts of things. But it's also a time where Jessica and I get to spend some time kind of reflecting on what's happened in their lives to this point. And for those of you who have kids and know far better than I do, what you'll know is that for me, seven years into my oldest son's life, it has gone incredibly fast. And people say that, and you know that it's going to happen, but nonetheless, until you experience it, you don't really realize how quickly time begins to march on. And so Jessica and I were reflecting over God's goodness and all kinds of funny stories and serious stories that have happened over these last seven years. And so we were reminded of one of those funny moments um, this, this last couple of weeks as we were talking about my older son, Leo. And in particular... The story that came up was one day, um, this is probably three or four years ago now, Jessica received a panicked phone call from our babysitter. 
And she said, hey, I'm really nervous and I need to call you. She had given my son Leo a granola bar and Leo had eaten that granola bar and upon finishing it, he looked up up at her and said, this doesn't have peanuts in it, does it? Because I have a peanut allergy. And so she, like any good babysitter, of course, freaks out, calls us, is absolutely nervous and terrified that something as horrible has happened and it was up to us to inform her that in fact, Leo does not have a peanut allergy. He's never had any sort of allergy like that, and I don't know where he learned it, but he had picked that particular moment to inform his babysitter of the goings-on. So there are those moments of temporary panic that aren't rooted in anything, and then there are the moments of real panic that come when you're parenting. Again, a story about Leo. I remember when he was probably about a year and a half, maybe two years old, he was in that stage where he was just constantly running everywhere. He could barely walk, but somehow he could run. And I'm not exactly sure how that works out, but that's how it played out with him. And I remember I was in the backyard one day. He was right next to me. I turned around to do something, and when I looked back, I saw him making a beeline for the street. Now, we lived on a fairly quiet street, so ordinarily that wouldn't have been a big deal, but there happened to be a car parked right on the edge of the curb, and I could see another car coming around the corner, and Leo would have been completely out of sight for that driver. And so I remember taking off across the yard, tearing out after him and calling his name and yelling, Leo, Leo, stop, and he just kept running and kept running, and I kept yelling as I got to him. I reached him just about the point that he was ready to clear that car with another car coming by. And I remember grabbing his shoulders and just jerking him back away from the street. And he, of course, was scared and frightened and and wasn't quite sure why I was so worked up. And I'm at this point completely worked up. And and I remember having the conversation with him and trying to express the seriousness of where it was that he was headed. And he had no inclination of what it was that was coming. And as I think about that story and as I think about that interaction with Leo, I can't help but think about the way that that relates really pretty directly with the story of Jonah. That God, as a loving and pursuing and chasing and gracious Father, pursues and chases down the ignorant and wicked Ninevites and the informed but disobedient prophet. And in Jonah, you really get this picture of a man who alternates between extremes in his response to this pursuing of God. We find in chapter 1 the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, God himself directly speaking to this man who had already been a prophet in his life. He had already declared the word of the Lord to the people of God. He'd already been in that position to be one who is a proclaimer of truth. And God comes, with him to, with a mess, comes to him rather with a message. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. I want you to call out their wickedness, call them to repentance, declare to them the goodness of the one true God of Israel. And Jonah, for a whole host of reasons, says, I want nothing to do with that. The Ninevites are a wicked people. They're a cruel people. They're a violent people. They want nothing to do with you, and I want nothing to do with them. And so he flees, gets on a boat, and goes literally as far as he's able to go in the known world at this time towards the other end of the spectrum to a city called Tarshish. On the way, God creates a violent storm to be raised up. It's revealed to the sailors that were taking Jonah to this city that it was in fact his sin and disobedience that was the cause of this storm. Jonah in that moment wishes for death and the sailors obliged by throwing him into the sea. And in chapter 2, we find God miraculously rescuing him. God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah and, 
And while we see Jonah protesting God's grace in chapter 1, we see Jonah praising God's grace in chapter 2. He sings a song, writes a poem, an incredibly beautiful story that references all kinds of other Old Testament scripture about the goodness and the graciousness of God. He recommits his life to the one true God. And in chapter 3, after first protesting God's grace and then praising God's grace, you see Jonah preaching God's grace. He goes into the city and declares that judgment is in fact coming for the wickedness of the Ninevites. And in one of the most beautiful displays of God's mercy and grace that we find in Scripture, the city turns en masse to the Lord. And in chapter 4, upon the repentance of this great city, Jonah pouts about God's grace. And this story reveals a reality of the Christian walk that spiritual maturity is always rooted in a deepening understanding of God's grace. That we never understand God's grace fully in this life, and just in the moment when we perhaps think we have, we actually discover how little we understood it to begin with. That God graciously reveals our ignorance through his continuing and ongoing grace. And at least for me, and I imagine for most of you in this room, you can directly track every major step that you've taken in your spiritual life to different ways, different wrinkles and insights and experiences of God's sovereign grace toward you. And that experience of God's grace ought to lead us into deeper humility within ourselves and our interactions with others and a deeper desire to share that grace with those who've never experienced it. But the story of Jonah brings with it a warning. When you believe that God doles out grace based upon your status or your behavior rather than by his own love, it makes you arrogant instead of humble. It makes you judgmental instead of merciful. And the grace that you did nothing to achieve, you now try to hoard rather than share. There's that old saying that familiarity brings contempt, and when you grow so familiar with the idea of God's magnificent grace that you're no longer stunned by it, amazed by it, shocked by it, and scandalized by it, you will inevitably become inoculated to its effects. When grace becomes familiar, expected, and when you feel that you are owed grace, Grace seemingly loses its power in your life altogether. And so one commentator said of this story, this story ends the same way it began. No sailors, no Ninevites, just Jonah and God. And we see this interaction beginning in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly that the city of Nineveh had repented and received mercy and grace from God. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
See, Jonah had said all of the right things in chapter 2. He had declared God's faithfulness and God's grace and God's pursuing love toward him, even in his sin. And if you remember in that moment, he even committed himself to obey God. In chapter 2, verse 9, he said, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. He declares his thankfulness, his understanding, his appreciation for God's grace and pursuit of him. But then Jonah goes back on what he had said in chapter 2, and he actually denounces God's call on his life altogether. And notice the language he says, O oh Lord, is, this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? He's saying this is exactly what I was afraid was going to happen. I knew that if I went and preached to these Ninevites, you couldn't help but be gracious and that you were going to bring forgiveness to them. He actually blames God for being too gracious. And he makes that statement with no sense of irony or self-awareness. Because the very same characteristics that he uses as an accusation against God are the very same reason that he was saved from certain death in the sea. Look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 4. Gracious and merciful, you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You're relenting from disaster. But in this passage, he's not singing to God. He's shouting at God. Who are you to do this? Who are you to bring forgiveness and grace and redemption to a people like the Ninevites? There's no joy at the salvation of these people. There's no joy that God deigned to use him to bring that salvation about. In the words of one commentator, Jonah is angry because he's done what God wanted him to do, but God had not done what Jonah wanted God to do. See, Jonah hated the Ninevites with a fury and a passion. He hated everything about them. He hated their ethnicity. They were Gentiles while he was Hebrew. He hated the way that they acted and, and treated other people, their violence and their depravity. He had no use for them at all, not for their nationality, not for their politics, or for anything else about them. And Jonah felt like they deserved whatever it was that they were going to get. But notice what it says in verse 2, even as Jonah is decrying God. He says, God extended his steadfast love to them. And that phrase that's translated in our Bibles as steadfast love comes from a Hebrew word, hesed, which denotes covenantal love. In essence, what Jonah is saying here is, God, you have extended the covenantal love reserved for the people of Israel to the city of Nineveh. You've made them sons and daughters. You've adopted them into the fold. You've brought my enemies into my family. And he decries God for that. He can't get past the fact that God is doing that. He's not going to get over it. And even after the repentance of these people of Nineveh, even after they realized and recognized and confessed and turned from their sin and their violence and their anger and their mistreatment and their rebellion against God, even after they acknowledged those things and spread ashes over their own heads and tore their own clothes in demonstration of their true and deep and heartfelt repentance, Jonah still in this moment resented God for having saved them. And he especially resented that God used him to do it. And we look at Jonah 
and our tendency is to dismiss him for his attitude. But how often do we do the very same thing? How often, upon hearing the call of God in our life, might we obey the letter of the law and live a life that we assume a Christian should live, but in our own hearts resent the fact that God would even set certain expectations on us? To resent that he would even put a particular calling on our life. And Jonah in this text responds like a child who's been told to do a chore and stomps and whines as he does what he's told. And in doing so, his resentful obedience in chapter 3 is shown to be cheap and empty. Now, why do I say that? Well, John in his letter in 1 John chapter 5 verse 3 describes it this way. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep the commandments And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So follow the line of logic that John lays out. He says the means by which you love God is by obeying what he tells you to do, and the means by which you are enabled to obey God is through faith in God. And each of those points is absolutely necessary to actually demonstrate our love and affection for God. Well, why does it actually take faith to obey God? Can I just white-knuckle my obedience? Doesn't that count? Why do I actually need faith to obey? Because everything in this world is telling you that the only means to true happiness is to be true to yourself. to be your own person, to find your own truth, to seek your own happiness at all costs. And so people take that seemingly affirming but ultimately toxic idea into their marriages and wonder why their spouse can't make them as happy as they'd like to be. They search for their meaning and wealth and comfort and wonder why they walk away dissatisfied. They pursue their identity and their sexuality or in social activism and find that those roots provide nothing but a fragile ego in constant need of validation. And still others begin to look to things that are seemingly deeper and more meaningful. They look to philosophies or religions to provide meaning and purpose, and so they seek out gurus and mystics and spiritual pathways. Or they attend churches and they volunteer, and they live lives of deprivation, presuming that those things inherently can provide some level of joy. But here's the problem. If love for God is born out in my obedience to God, and if obedience to God is enabled only by faith, then resentful, faithful obedience to God is actually disobedience because God is in no way glorified in my resentful obedience. And the only thing that can break you from the patterns of either self-indulgence or religiosity is the realization that God is ultimately about God. That everything he does and everything he interacts with and everything he reveals to us and everything he calls us to is meant to enliven our hearts to him so that we might make much of him, so that his name might be glorified and in his name being glorified that we might find deep and meaningful joy in him. 
that everything he does is for his own glory and the joy of his people, that his commands, in the words of 1 John chapter 5, are not burdensome, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and that his commands are intended to draw you into greater faith and greater joy. So the only way to find true and lasting joy is to trust that your maker knows better than you what will bring about your deepest satisfaction. See, Jonah had learned through the experience in chapter 1 to obey God out of obligation. But his heart had not been turned in any meaningful way toward the Ninevites. Well, at this point in Jonah's life, he doesn't care about any of that. He's angry, he's resentful, and he goes so far as to wish for his own death. And understand, make, make no mistake about what it is he's declaring when he, when he calls for his own death. What he's saying is that he would rather die than live in a world in which his enemies received God's forgiveness. It is a profound declaration. In essence, at this point in Jonah's life, he's learned nothing. He's back to the same attitude that he had in chapter 1, and notice the response of God in verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, this is a simple but penetrating question. This is God posing a rhetorical question to, to Jonah, intending to jog his memory and make him reconsider his attitude. God, in essence, is saying to Jonah, do you remember how you disobeyed me? Do you remember how you did the exact opposite of what it was that I told you to do? Do you remember how you ran away from me? And then do you remember how you cried out to me in the moment before you were experiencing your own death, in the moment before the last bit of oxygen escaped from your lungs, that you called out to me for deliverance? And do you remember the giant fish that I sent to you to save you from certain death? Do you remember the grace, Jonah, that I showed to you? Do you remember the mercy that I poured out on you when you least deserved it? And yet you want to be angry with me for showing patience to a whole city of people who are doing the very same thing you did. This is God giving Jonah yet another chance to repent, to turn Another opportunity of God showing his ongoing patience toward Jonah when he was in the middle of his rebellion. But notice Jonah's response. He says nothing, and in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could, uh, rather, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now understand what's actually happening here and and the key that we find is in verse 5 where it says he went and sat to watch so that he should see what would become of the city. Jonah goes to the edge of town. He sets up a campsite. He builds himself a, a roughly hewn booth trying to get out of the beating sun. And it says that he sat there waiting to see what was going to happen to the city. And that ought to raise a question for us today. But notice here what that actually means. He's hoping that somehow God would change his mind and end up destroying the city after all. 
He's hoping that he can wait out to that end of that 40 days and see God actually bring judgment. And that's what raises a question for us, a question that we've hinted at for the last three chapters, which is this. Who is your Nineveh? Who are the Ninevites in your life? Are there those, if we're being honest with ourselves and honest in our own minds, and I hope we can at least do that, are there those that you would just, just as soon see punished as come to repentance? Are there those who, if you woke up tomorrow morning and learned that they had met their demise, would be completely unmoved or perhaps even happy to hear it? And if so, does that cause any concern for you about your understanding of God's grace? Have you, like Jonah, presumed that God's grace abounds for people like you, but isn't deserved by others? Who are the people, either collectively or individually, that you hate? And most of us in polite conversation would say, well, of course there's people I don't hate. I mean, there's people that I don't particularly like, but there's nobody that I really hate. But, but as we begin to play that game out in our minds, who are those where you, where you say in your mind, if they cease to exist, I just wouldn't care? because the world would be better for it. But there's another lesson for us in this text. That despite Jonah's behavior for the second time in this book, even after Jonah's rebellion at the beginning of chapter 4, God uses creation itself as a means to divinely care for Jonah. Jonah had constructed himself this makeshift pop tent, which was doing an incredibly poor job of actually keeping him cool under the sun, but God ordains this vine to grow up nearly instantaneously to grow up over, over him in order to provide shade. And here's the lesson that that actually gives us. Sometimes we want to be the one to judge the evildoers, and sometimes we want to be the one to judge the judges. We want to be pharisaical, about the Pharisees. So perhaps in your mind, you look at it and you say, you know what, there's actually no group that I particularly hate. I mean, I think about groups in terms of ethnicity or nationality or, or political makeup or, or, or geographic location or socio socioeconomic status, and I can't think of any of those particular groups that I actually hate. But then when it actually comes down to what you hate are judgmental people. If those judgmental people, those loudmouths, those big mouths, those ones who can't keep their opinions to themselves, if those people got what was coming to them, then I would be happy. And you have become judgmental about the judgmental. When you see someone like Jonah, you delight in thinking someday they're going to get theirs. And in saying so, you have become Jonah. Well, fortunately, God doesn't approach us that way. God shows him a grace. And this is actually the first time that we see Jonah described as happy in this book. In fact, the author goes so far as to say that he was exceedingly glad. 
He was in a state of euphoria that this vine had sprung up to provide shade for him. God's commands made him angry. The repentance of the Ninevites made him angry. The grace showed to the people made him angry. But this vine, this little shade plant, made him happy. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. See, the truth of the matter is that both the extraordinary plant and the seemingly ordinary change in weather were acts of God's sovereignty, each intended to communicate his nature and his will to Jonah. So one commentator, Desmond Alexander, said it this way, God's sovereignty is not restricted to acts of compassion. As the one who gives life, he also has the right to bring it to an end. And that's exactly what God does in this passage. Jonah was angry that something was taken away from him, that he had done nothing to earn. And he missed the point of God's rhetorical question yet again, and in defiance, answers brashly and harshly to God, yes, I do well to be angry, even so angry I could die. And the irony, as one commentator said, is that in verse 3, God questions God's right to deliver. And in verse 8, Jonah questions God's right to destroy. In other words, there was nothing God was going to do that Jonah was not going to find fault with. Look at God's response in verse 10 in a very unusual way to end the short book. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So as we close out this book, Notice what it is that's happening in this text. Jonah is a manic figure. He's a person that is by nature one of extremes. We find him obeying God as he prophesies to the children of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 14, the only other time that his name is mentioned in Scripture. Yet he's running from the Lord in Jonah chapter 1. He despairs and seems to have a death wish in chapter 1, but prays the Lord for his rescue in chapter 2. He proclaims the wrath and the grace of God in chapter 3 and resents the salvation of the Ninevites in chapter 4. And yet I think if we're honest, if we're actually being true to our own thoughts and understanding, we have a tendency to act the very same way as Jonah in our lives. We swing from one pole to the other. 
At our worst, we willfully indulge in our own selfish desires, and yet in our saner moments, we turn to God in thankful worship. See, Jonah's life illustrates the double-minded man mentioned in James chapter 1. He is unstable in every way. And that inconsistency is illustrated in this narrative. He's furious that God let the Ninevites live. These people were flesh and blood, created image bearers of God himself, imbued with souls and desperately in need of a Savior. And yet Jonah would have only been satisfied with their destruction. But Jonah is likewise furious that God lets this plant die. A plant that had no soul and no eternal value and that Jonah himself had done nothing to create. And so God here appeals to this twisted character of Jonah by saying to them, there's 120,000 people who do not know their left hand from their right. And commentators differ on what that means. Some people, uh, what that means. Some people say that the 120,000 souls who didn't know their left hand from the right is actually a reference to the children of the city of Nineveh, which would have put the population of Nineveh at nearly 700,000 people. Other commentators, and I would include my own humble opinion here, would say that this 120,000 people is probably a reference to the fact that there's 120,000 people who do not know right from wrong. They're backward in every single way. They don't know their left hand from their right hand. That's how twisted up their souls are. They have no moral compass. They have no righteous mooring. He's asking Jonah to extend the kind of compassion that one might have for a child. And as if that's not enough, God mentions the cattle. Maybe if you don't care about the people, you'll at least care about the animals. And the instability that Jonah demonstrated is the kind that comes when you have a head full of knowledge about God and a heart that is empty of actually knowing him. He's become completely debased in his attitude towards those who were dying and heading to an eternity in hell. And every time we see Jonah speak in this book, he's quoting scripture. In chapter 1, he recognizes that God is the one who created earth and sea, which he pulls from the book of Genesis. In chapter 2, he sings about God's mercy and steadfast love, which we find in the book of Psalms. In chapter 3, he proclaims God's holiness and wrath to the Ninevites, which you see all throughout the period of Judges and all throughout the period of the prophets in the Old Testament. And in chapter 4, he quotes Moses himself, declaring God's love and patience and mercy and grace. This man knows the Bible. But when it comes to his interaction with the people, he showed that for all of his right doctrine, it had never worked its way into his heart. Why? Because his doctrine was unmoored from the character of God and did not lead him to worship God. So I want to read a quote from you from Michael Horton, who's a pastor and theologian. I want you to listen because I think this is so vital for us. He says, all of our faith and practice arises out of the drama of Scripture. The big story that traces the plot of history from creation to consummation with Christ as its alpha and omega, beginning and end. 
And out of this unfolding drama, God reveals doctrines. From what God does in history, we are taught certain things about who He is and what it means to be created in His image, fallen and redeemed, renewed and glorified in union with Christ. The drama and the doctrine provoke us to praise and worship, which is doxology. And together, these three coordinates, coordinates rather, give us a new way of living in the world as disciples. So understand what he just said. He says, if you want to know what a disciple is, here's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who reads the great story of Scripture, who sees the drama from beginning to end, from creation to consummation, and everything in between Genesis and Revelation. And upon reading that story, you discover doctrine. Who is God and what is he about? The holiness that we sang about, the mercy that we sang about, the love that he shows for us, the grace that he declares, the wrath that he extends to those who reject him. We see all of these elements of God's nature on display. And in seeing the doctrine through the drama, it leads you to doxology. It leads you to praise and to worship his name. And that is what it is to be a disciple. That the understanding of the drama of Scripture is what drives us to go to a lost world that does not know Christ. To go to those who even might view us as enemies. To go to those who not only don't have a use for Christians, but actually despise us for our beliefs. And the temptation we face particularly in an era and a place that is is as divided as our country is, is to sit like Jonah and wait for God's judgment on people we don't like. To hold ourselves up and just wait for the end. But listen, God has saved you and called you and equipped you to be his hands and his feet in this world. And the truth is that whomever it is that you despise most in the world, those who are different politically or culturally or morally, are those that desperately need the grace of God. And far from being beyond the reach of God, they are the same ones that God has sent you and I to reach. Brothers and sisters, our goal, our God-given mission is to make disciples of all nations. And far from that simply being the work of foreign missionaries, he has placed us where we are in the geography and in the era in which we live to be a beacon, a city on a hill, salt and light, as good Samaritans to reach those whom we might be most naturally inclined to hate. And so the question we need to ask is, do we believe that God is not only capable but also desirous to see our Ninevites rescued? Has the drama of Scripture informed our doctrine to lead us to doxology in order that we might make disciples? Or are we, like Jonah, satisfied with trinkets and baubles, booths and shade plants? happy to look on a world while it perishes. 
Paul in Romans chapter 10 says it this way, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brother and sister, be the one who is that preacher. That evangelist, that bringer of good news who declares that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's heed the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 where it says that Jesus looked at the crowds and in looking upon them, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord to to send out laborers into his harvest. See, we need laborers. We need those who are not content to sit back with sound theology and flawless doctrine all the while their hearts cold to the touch and their hands unstained with the soil of this world. We need those whose hearts are ablaze with the God-given gospel of grace who look out on a world of sinners and say, there but for the grace of God go I. That's me if God had not deigned to intervene in my hell-bound life. We need those who look at the pride marches and the race riots and the political circus and say that the answer is not in Washington, the answer is not in a politician, the answer is in King Jesus. And why does this matter so much? I can speak for myself. As I wrote this this last week, I was overwhelmed with the realization that if God had not rescued me, I could just as easily be the one shaking my fist at him and cursing those who claim his name, if not for faithful laborers. But in 1969, a little old lady faithfully asked my parents to join her for church. And as they sat under the preaching of his word, coming from irreligious homes and backgrounds, God gripped their hearts, showed them their sin, and showed them that the answer was only his love, that only he could provide, and that he did give through Jesus Christ. And in doing so, that little old lady, with no knowledge of what was going to happen, changed the course of a whole branch of our family tree. So my mom passed about four months ago, and in her passing, one of the things that I did was look back on uh, emails that I had sent and received from her. And I came across one random email that I had sent to her that described the plight of a bunch of people who had kind of been around the church and didn't like the message of the church and ultimately ended up walking away from faith and walking away from God and declaring the bigotry, uh, the, the bigotry that, they, um, that they claimed to have seen within the context of the church. And, and my mother wrote back to me with these words. She said, before I was saved, I did not know I needed to be saved. 
I did not know that I would die and go to an eternal hell. I just did not know. This is where these dear dear people are at at this time. They seem so hateful and hard-hearted, but praise God, he is able, and I am so thankful. See, the truth of that statement is that we are all Ninevites. And God, in his grace, continues to pursue and love slaves to sin in order that he might adopt us to be sons and daughters of grace. So why do we as Christians care about these things? Because there is a world full of people who need to hear about a loving Savior. That the grace we've experienced is not intended to be hoarded, but is intended to be extended and proclaimed freely to all people. And it would be the cruelest thing imaginable to have the answer the key to eternal life, and to withhold it. Would we at Disciples Church be a congregation full of people who have a passion for souls to imitate our Savior, to go to a lost and dying world, to hold nothing back in the confident hope that God is going to call and redeem whomever it is he wills? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this book. I thank you for what it teaches us about you. I thank you for what it teaches us about ourselves. And I thank you for the way that we see our own proclivities and temptations and leanings in the pages of Scripture. But I thank you even more than that, God, that you don't stop there. That you don't just reveal our sin and leave us in our mess in hopes that we'll somehow climb our way out but that you are the God who rescues, you are the God who redeems, you are the God who relents from wrath, you are the God who chases and pursues, you are the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances, that you are the God who has saved and called and equipped men and women, boys and girls, for the mission of the gospel. Realizing even in the proclamation that the results do not belong to us, that we are not called to change hearts, we are called to proclaim the gospel in the confident hope that the Holy Spirit, which is active active in this world, will change and transform minds and hearts that are evil and far away. And we're confident because you've done it already in us. So God, give us a passion for souls. Give us a passion for the lost and help us to view our role wherever it is you've placed us as one that is ordained by you. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.